All right, welcome to Operator Syndrome. Uh, whoever you are, wherever you are, we're uh, we're glad you uh, take the time to listen to our our humble podcast, which is, uh, as you will see, more of a a discussion uh, between two friends, uh, and and it's 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 pretty informal. So I'll turn it over to my friend Patrick, and he can uh, say some more about what we're doing. Yeah, hi everyone. My name is Patrick Nelson. Uh, I was a former Army Ranger, uh, management consultant, and technologist. Um, what we're doing here is, well, we haven't quite defined what we're doing here, but we know that uh, we want to tell our story. We were inspired by a lot of other podcasts that we've seen from uh, uh, service members, from actually people from all walks of life, and uh, we thought it might be interesting to pair, pair up and, and tell our stories um, with what it was like during our term, our service, and our transition uh, from the military. So, Steve, right how about how about your background? Why don't you tell folks? About yeah, that? so my name is Steve Watkins, um, born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. I reside in Kentucky currently on a farm in the middle of nowhere, which is by my choosing. And um, I'm I'm a former Navy SEAL, uh, stationed at SEAL Team Five. I had three uh, deployments including a combat deployment in the Gulf War, way back when we used muskets and things like that. Um, and uh, I, I got out, got educated, I guess, uh, did a college degree, then a Master of Divinity, uh, which is a seminary degree, uh, became ordained as a minister, and then went back and got my PhD. Uh, and now I, I teach as a professor in college, um, and I went back in the Navy in 20, 2009 as a Navy chaplain. I got a commission as a Lieutenant 03 in the Navy. Um, and um, I got a sort of second career. Uh, it's about as opposite a thing you can do uh, from being a SEAL. But um, um, I have to say, and, and this is one of the things that Patrick and I will get into in the course of this podcast, uh, uh, all truth is uh, paradox, I always say, and um, some of the hardest times I had emotionally and psychologically, which is what we have an eye toward doing with this podcast to help veterans and get veterans talking. Uh, that's one of the problems as we see it, <clears throat> and we're, we have a whole lot of information to share about this, but was uh, as a chaplain, uh, it, was, it was psychologically worse than the combat I faced. Having said that, I did not see near as much combat as Patrick. He has fought harder and in more entanglements than I ever saw. The Gulf War was just, it was kind of a fluke. It, it was over fast, as fast as it began, really. The, the ground offensive was three days. Imagine that. I mean, we, we totally ran the Iraqis out of Kuwait in three days. Now, we had bombed them for, and done other stuff uh, for about a month or two, but um, that pretty helps. incredible. Yeah, it, it helps a lot. So, uh, yeah, but as a chaplain, I, uh, I went to a, a command called Dev Group, Naval Special Warfare Development Group, uh, which we'll talk more about. We're going we're gonna to kind of try to show the landscape of, of several worlds, the combat world, uh, the special operator world, um, and, and that, that will be forthcoming too. It, it, we could talk for hours on this stuff, so we're just trying to get familiar with one another and with you, our audience. But I served as a chaplain in... Uh, one of the largest mass casualties uh, in history. It was the largest SEAL mass catastrophe called Extortion 17. Um, we'll be talking more about that too, but 
that was harder than anything I did. And I, I, I didn't even carry a weapon as a chaplain, um, but it was these Keiko calls. And for those um, maybe civilian listeners, or if you're not familiar, that's Casualty Assistance Calls Officer Team. And these are the guys in dress blues or dress uniform in whatever branch that have to go and notify next of kin, widows, children, parents, uh, that their loved one has, has been killed in combat. Um, that was brutal. And I'll save that for later, perhaps, but uh, just to say um, that caused me some of the most severe stress, just seeing those families grieving, seeing my brothers in arms grieving and, and so forth. So that's a, that's a great segue into um, why we're calling this operator syndrome. So um, operator is a loaded term in the military, and depending on the service, um, uh, there are a lot of strong feelings about who and what is an operator. Uh, but really, the, the name came from there's a, uh, a doctor um, who, who's got this idea out there and, and, uh, of a syndrome, of a condition um, that relates to the experiences that we've had. And that doctor, and we'll, in, in later episodes, we'll, we'll talk more in depth about that and, and get you that person's that name to give them credit for it. But operator syndrome is essentially the, the effects the, the physical, mental, maybe even spiritual effects um, that result of a certain type of lifestyle. And that lifestyle more or less is, um, you know, uh, uh, high-end, high-risk training, um, uh, intense training, uh, combat deployments can be a part of that, but not necessarily. And it really has to do with, my understanding of it is, is cycling on and off, just this constant um, this constant toil on the body and mind uh, that's required to attain uh, a high level of proficiency in, in anything. And um, uh, oper the, the term operator in this sense, I believe, uh, came about because uh, the, uh, the physician had in mind um, what they were seeing with um, uh, special operators, special operations forces. Um, but I think based on my interpretation, like it could definitely, it could apply to folks who did, you know, regular conventional combat deployments or, or perhaps law enforcement or, or EMTs, firefighters. I, I think that the definition is broad enough that it could apply. And so that's the, that's the tone we want to strike, the tenor. Like we, that's what we want to speak to. Um, you know, there are folks out there who did, you know, 20 plus years in our respective units and, and, re and, and you know, relatively our term was short. Um, but I think that we understand enough about what, what that feels like that we can speak to it. And, and hopefully we'll be able to push each other as we're talking about our stories. At, uh, you know, you'll hear our stories, but you also get a level deeper because we'll be able to talk to each other and ask those probing questions that maybe you have while you're sitting there listening. So uh, that's the operator syndrome name. Um, so we, we, we wanted to introduce ourselves, but we did also want to keep it light. Uh, we wanted to, we wanted to uh, whenever you've got an Army Ranger and a Navy SEAL together, folks have questions. Um, folks are interested on our takes on, on each other. And, you know, if we're going to do that, let's just get it out of the way with. And let's do it in this episode so that way we can talk about some other things. And, of course, along the way, these things will pop up again. But so to that end. Uh, I wrote out some questions. 
Uh, Steve will have some stuff along the way as well. We'll both answer. The ideas will both answer them. These questions are, are, some of them are meant, some are serious, some are silly, some are off the wall, um, but hopefully it gets us talking. So first question, I, I talked about the term operator. And I said that that's a loaded term in some circles. Uh, Steve, why don't you tell me that term operator in, in your time and in your understanding and in, in, this, in the Navy uh, and in the special warfare community, what does, what does operator mean? What's the general consensus about what that means? Right, right. Good, good question. Great way to start it off. Uh, when a SEAL um, talks, about another, talks about another SEAL as an operator, they're talking about somebody most of the time, like you say, it, it's, you know, I don't want to pin this down too, too uh, tediously, but is somebody who is in a deploying combat unit. Um, and the synonyms that we use that go along with operator are a shooter, an assaulter. Um, it, it's, it's somebody that's, de that's, a, that's a fully qualified Navy SEAL or other fully qualified special operator, army ranger, a green beret, an air force pararescueman who is in a combat unit and is deploying. So there's a lot of people, you know, when in spec ops, one of the things you'll, you'll realize is that you've got the shooters that are the smallest in a SEAL team. Now, I don't know about the Rangers uh, operate on a larger uh, operational unit than the SEALs do. We, we work in the platoon level, which is 16 shooters, but we have a support command. <laughs> we have probably more support people than we do shooters or operators. Mm -hmm. So, and so from our side, an operator means a fully qualified SEAL who is in a deployable platoon. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. That's an interesting take. And that makes sense. And and the culture differences are, are, are unique there. So uh, on the Army side, and, and by the way, we'll also go ahead and, and, and preface this with, well, Steve talked about when he served, around the time that he served. And I served, you know, probably I served from 2005 to um, I left, uh, I did a sit in the National Guard and I left that in 2012. So that's around the time frame that I had served. And uh, terminology evolves over that time. And then it's definitely branch specific and unit specific. So in the Army, the term operator uh, traditionally was reserved for folks who had attended the operator training course, OTC or CAG. Okay, so for the special mission unit of the United States Army. Um, that's, how, that's how it was reserved. Um, Rangers had the benefit of having a name already. So a Ranger, <laughs> a ranger is a Ranger. Uh, and so, you know, rangers in the time that I was serving wouldn't traditionally refer to each other as operators unless they were joking. Um, but, uh, but, you know, you hit on something that's interesting, which is the difference between shooters, shooters and support. Um, and the rangers are unique because all rangers have to go through the same. And at my time, it was an indoctrination process. And then later on, it was an assessment and selection process. So. You know, there is, you know, obviously, like uh, folks, you know, assaulters on the line think of themselves a certain way and, and folks who are not assaulters have that same understanding. But I, I think that, you know, the, the support, the support and enablers, I think is the word that, that we gravitate towards uh, more often. 
uh, Intel folks, mechanics, the Ranger Regiment has cooks. Um, you know, a Ranger thinks of them differently. I know that a Ranger thinks of an enabler, a support person uh, with, I'm going to say with more regard than maybe sometimes shooters from, you know, other special operations units see their enablers. And that's just inherent because we, we, we went through that initial training together and we all see each other as you are a ranger. You went through RIP at my time or you go through RASP now, you know, you're a ranger first and foremost and we appreciate that. Yeah, you're a cook, but, but you're our cook. You're a ranger cook and that matters to us. So interesting. Um, yeah. So you, uh, if, I, if I got, if I got that, that's really interesting because this is why we have these conversations. Um, so you, you guys were talking about a tier one unit when you heard operator. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's traditionally, again, at the time uh, that I mm -hmm. served, that's, that's how, that's how it was reserved over, yeah. over time. I saw um, sort of the general, the general public lexicon of operator evolve, even, even since I've been out, you know, yeah. Uh, folks re refer to special operations and special operators. Well, obviously, you know, all the units under the special operations command would fall into that, you know, exactly. Rangers, PJs, every, everybody would fall under, under that umbrella and that'd be right. But um, yeah, on the army side, typically um, that was a, a term of reverence bestowed only to those who had attained that level. Gotcha. So one of the things we want to do is educate maybe we want to talk to a wide range of people, not just former operators, much less former special operators. I talked to a guy locally where I live who has suffering with a lot of stress and he wasn't, he wasn't what I would call an operator, but he was in a unit that had plenty, plenty of stress. Um, so I, I wanted to, so, so, so we're going to be defining some concepts here. And I, th I thought this would be a good term since I mentioned the word tier one, um, and you may not have heard of that. Now, I'm going to be very careful because I was at a tier one unit and I had to sign a 75 year non-disclosure agreement that I would not divulge classified information. I remember when I was signing it, the day I was signing it to before I was what, what we call read into uh, a top secret program. And I thought, oh, 75 years, that's not really that long. And then I was like, wait a second, I'll be dead in 75 years. So anyway, uh, just a humorous aside. So on the Navy side, um, there is a tier, tier one unit, which is analogous to the Army tier one unit called CAG. And I'm going to be using the unclassified terms out of respect, not only for my non-disclosure and, and commitment and oath to do that, but also for a, a force, what's called force protection issue. And that is there are families that, I mean, obviously that these operators are a part of and they deal with some of the nastiest people in the world. I mean, really bad, bad characters. And um, if they had the chance to hurt their families or them, they would do it. And so we still need to be vigilant. And I know there's just, you know, you could say, well, what about you could Google this and find this out in 10 seconds? Well, yeah, but it's, I'm not going to, I'm going to try to do my part. So on the Navy side, our tier one unit is called Naval Special Warfare Development Group. There is another term for this unit. Um, and you probably know what that is. It is so ubiquitous in the popular culture that you can just Google what I just told you, which is unclassified and then pop it'll be the first thing that hits and it'll tell you the name of that team. But one of the questions I always get from as a former SEAL operator, I was at SEAL Team 5 
And uh, the, the SEAL teams are divided up in numbers. So you have numbers one, three, five, seven, odd number teams, and they're on the West Coast stationed in Coronado, California, which is also where the boot camp is, BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training, which is our selection, as Patrick mentioned, the Ranger selection. And that's just one. Then you go on to advanced training and you, st you still don't have your, what's called a trident, which is the emblem that, that shows that you're a fully qualified SEAL until about an, a year after you go through all kinds of way more complicated, difficult training, at least mentally, than BUDS. On the East Coast are the even number teams, two, four, eight, 10, 12. And of course, I skipped one. <laughs> So the question I always get is, oh, you were at SEAL Team 5. Does that mean you were one step away from being at the other team? And I said, no, it doesn't work that way at all. It does. And it's a common logical thing to think, oh, oh, you just go, you start out at one and then you go to two, three, four. That's not the way it works. When you graduate from BUDS, you get orders uh, to either the West Coast or the East Coast. And nobody gets orders out of BUDS to that team I'm talking about. Everybody gets orders to either... The, the West Coast one, three, five, seven, and there's many now, uh, or the East Coast two, four, eight, ten, etc. Um, and and we all do the same job. We're all there's there's some subtle differences between like a sealed delivery vehicle unit and a non-sealed delivery vehicle unit, but we're all we all have the same training. We're all capable of of of, of operating on the same level. The tier one unit is a whole different world of operational um, readiness and training. These, these, these guys are the most elite fighters in the war, in the world, both on the, on the army side, we may say green side at times, or the blue side, the Navy side. Um, these guys are just, uh, I, I, I was witnessing some of their, some of their operational training um, a while back and i from the time i was in till now I, I it was like a world of difference i mean these guys are just i call them space cowboys <laughs> i mean they're so good they can jump out of a plane where you're looking at the curvature of the earth and fly across an international border halo um and and open parachutes land patrol in and I, all i can say about their operational level is that if they're coming after you, you're 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 gonna a goner. They're they're that good. They're just they don't make mistakes. And it's amazing to me that we don't lose more of them, given that the hornet's nest that these guys are going into. They're probably suiting up right now somewhere in the world, getting ready to go strike a target and a difficult target. <laughs> so um, so that that's that's another distinction between the green side and the blue side. But tier one, um, without going into We'll go into that more in the podcast, but these these are the most elite operators on both sides of the fence, Army, Navy, and Air Force. Um, so we'll leave it at that for now. Okay, here's a here's another question, um, or here's here's another activity. Steve, go ahead. Describe the Rangers. If someone were to say to you, "What are what are the Rangers about?" How would you describe the Rangers? Yeah. That's a good one. That's another good one. Um, I would describe the Rangers as an elite assault force that operates usually on the company level, 
which is about a hundred, but, but not always that we, now I want to say something about the Rangers from the, from the outset. They're probably as close to a regular SEAL team assault force as you're going to get. It's just the numbers. They, they operate on a larger number level. Um, but pretty much the two main things SEALs and Rangers do are what are called direct action. That is, we go in and take out a target, or blow something up, or disrupt something. Um, and that, there's a lot of misunderstanding in, in this world because there's a lot of other special operators. But say the Green Berets or the special forces, uh, they, they are primary mission is to train other uh, forces. It's called FID, Foreign Internal Defense. Now, we can all do FID. All special operators can do FID on a certain level. We did FID. We trained the Malaysian special forces. We trained the South Korean special forces. So we did some of that. But the Green Berets really have it nailed because they, they learn languages, different languages, so that they can talk fluently. Um, um, they're very knowledgeable. Their, their knowledge base is probably wider, in my experience. And I've been to two special forces schools, one called Safartec at Fort Bragg. It's a... Well, actually, it's classified, but it's a school of, of training assaulters. And then SODIC, which is Special Operations Target Interdiction Course. This is the Category 1 sniper course, the highest level Army sniper course there is. I completed both of those schools. So I knew I got to rub shoulders with, with, with Green Berets a lot. And also Army Rangers. There were, there were Rangers there at sniper school. I can't remember about Sephardic. It's been so long. So I would... I would just say, yeah, I see Rangers as really analogous. And, and, and I, in case I, I don't say this too, I know I maybe I'm, I'm a little long-winded, but hey, I get paid to talk. Uh, I'm a professor, so I can't help myself. Um, range, there, there are two groups in the, in the military that I was most happy to see come to our aid. Helicopter pilots, both with extraction platforms, meaning get us the heck out of here, or gunships, most commonly an Apache, an AH-64, which I don't know if I'd still be sitting here if it weren't for helicopters. They also scare the Jesus out of me because I always thought if I, if I die, it'll probably be in a helicopter crash. And then Rangers. We, there were times, in, in fact, there was a, a famous episode at Paitia Airfield in Operation Just Cause where it was a big debacle where a, a platoon of SEALs got dropped into a, an airfield to try to disable one of Noriega's planes when we did all that. Well, they, they met fierce resistance. They, they didn't know. And there's another one of those things that scares the bejesus out of me, bad intel. Um, that means bad information. And they got pinned down on the airfield, lost four SEALs, were killed. One was paralyzed, a guy I met, a friend of mine. And it was Rangers that got them out of that jam. I mean, they were, they had nowhere to go. They just were flat on the tarmac. I mean, there was no cover and they were taken belt fed, which we'll get into that maybe. So that's how I would sum up Rangers. So Rangers are the heroes that Navy SEALs dream about at night when they're tucking in. I know I, I go to, I, I go to bed every night with Rangerific over my bed because I'm so impressed. No, this is us having fun. And I mean, we'll, we'll joke around a lot, but no, these guys are tough. It, it, if there's two people I ever want to have backing me up, 
it would be Rangers and Marines. Marines fight hard and they're good shots and they're not scared to fight. And I, when I say that, there's so many combat troops out there that are awesome and that, that they're, they're excellent. Um, but it's, sometimes it's hit or miss when you get into what's called infantry level ground pounder kind of troops. You got some good ones. You've got some people that have done stuff beyond what, what many Navy SEALs have ever done heroically. And, and I mean, fierce fighting units that are getting ready to be sent over toward Ukraine called the 82nd Airborne and the 101st out of Kentucky. Um, so it's a mix. And, and many of those infantrymen go on to be CAG operators, tier one operators. So there's no snobbiness as far as I'm concerned with it's it's and there's seals that are complete dirtbags. I've met them, and they they in fact they usually get washed out. They're they're they they don't want to fight. They wanted the glory. They somehow made it through selection, and nobody wants them in their platoon. That was a known factor. There's a lot of them out there. Or not? I mean, I'm not saying the high percentage of seals are this right. way. I'm saying that there there's I've met a a, a number of them, and um so yeah so that I. I want to say that piece at the outset <clears throat> um i'll describe what i'll describe the seals now um thank you so uh you, you took the you took the high road um so i'll need to do the same now <laughs> <laughs> you took the high road so you know seals if i were to describe them they're uh you know the premier maritime uh, special operations force i i think no one will question in the world uh, I happen to be a patriot, so you know anything American, I'm going to go ahead and put number top, number one, top of the list. Um, you know, traditionally operate in smaller teams than conventional units for sure, um, and um, uh, I definitely know that a, a lot of energy, time, and energy and resources goes into training a SEAL. And there's no doubt about that. Um, you know, I, I believe it's uh, up to two years to get a fully qualified, and Steve, you were talking to this about finally earning that spot and earning that, that insignia that marks uh, a, a SEAL. Uh, even up to that point, I mean, there's a lot of time, resources, and energy put into training that person in all kinds of skills, individual skills, team skills. Um, and, then, and then at that point, that person then needs to prove himself within the unit. And you know, as a ranger, I can respect that because the rangers are very much about um, proving yourself on the team. Uh, I would say, you know, the, the training pipeline, if you will, for a ranger is, is relatively short compared to a lot of the ones that are out there. You know, a lot of the ones that include, um, you know, individual infiltration techniques that people are learning, free fall, um, you know, scuba closed circuit dive, language training. There's, uh, there are a lot of special operations units with uh, a lot of individual skills that take a long time and rightly so, to create someone who's got all the skills necessary to execute the job. But a ranger at the end of the day is, is first and foremost an infantryman. And, you know, we're fortunate in the fact that to be a good infantryman, you know, first and foremost, you need aggressiveness. And, um, you know, you do need to be intelligent because you have to understand uh, the battlefield and the situation that you're in. But it's really about um, uh, attacking a problem with vigor. And, you know, the, in, in the uh, assessment and selection or the indoctrination back in my day, the whole purpose was to find people with that type of mentality. And then once they got to the unit, uh, it was there that, 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 that uh, the 
rest of the selection process took place. So, you know, SEALs, again, uh, highly trained individuals working in small teams, uh, traditionally or, or doctrinally um, maritime problem sets. But as we saw over the last 20 plus years, uh, definitely uh, able to apply their skills um, in a myriad of environments, as we all had to do. So uh, let's get into some, let's get into some short, quick ones. Um, this is an interesting one. So I know in the Rangers, there is, when you go through training, people ask, well, did you go through in the winter or the summer? And depending on which type, which training you participate in and when, you, you have an opinion of other people and the other class. So, uh, Steve, when you went, were you uh, a winter buds guy, summer buds guy? What were you? I was winter. My hell week was in November. Um, but I have to say, and I know where you mean, the number one thing about the, the number one difficulty, and there's a lot of difficulties in getting through SEAL basic training, basic underwater demolition school, BUDS, um, is, uh, is uh, cold, cold water. And they use that to make more people quit than any other thing there is. And if you haven't ever had the experience of a thing we call surf torture, you're really missing out in life, let me tell you. Um, they basically get you to the point where you're hypothermic, borderline hypothermic, and then pull you out. They've got charts and everything. They've got it down. They've got surf torture down to a science because they don't want to lose anybody. And, and there was a guy in my class that actually died of hypothermia. It doesn't happen that often. Um, he, died on, he died on a seven mile ocean swim. Yes, that's a long way to swim. It's a long way to run for most people. Um, real cold water. But let me just, to be fair to my summertime hell week brothers, the Pacific Ocean is still doesn't get much over the mid 60s. They just leave you in longer. So they're still going to freeze you no matter what um, and, and get you just as shivering and shaking uncontrollably in the summer. So, yeah, there's a kind of again, there's a kind of snobbiness. I was a winter class, man, you know, and uh, all that. It's like, come on. There's no you know, they know they know what they're doing and, and they're they're really good at it. So and just to say, too, just to follow up. Um, Patrick's point with like, what is a SEAL? A lot of people don't know what SEAL stands for. Uh, it's an acronym for sea, air, and land. Um, so it doubles for SEA and then A for air and L for land. Um, and th those are those are one of our defining features. Patrick mentioned we, we, we can jump where we're airborne. We can jump into the ocean, which was my favorite thing to do. I really did enjoy it. Um, and we can we can lock out of a submarine, a nuclear submarine, um, swim in, um, or patrol in land. Um, so we have a pretty wide range of um, insertion abilities, is what I'll say. Ways to get into a target, and not only that, we train mountain warfare, desert warfare, jungle warfare, uh, Arctic warfare, winter warfare. So. We've got to be able to basically, if, if the country were to call upon us to hit a target anywhere in the world, we could do it uh, by training, hopefully, if everything went well. Um, now, the, the tier one units, Na Navy, Army, they're both, they can do it all. I mean, they're, they're way, way up there um, and better than, a, better than a, a regular SEAL team. 
Um, but just because they have more assets, they have more money, they're not as restricted by the military bureaucracy. Um, they, they don't even, they, they actually work directly for the president and the national security council. They don't even fall technically within the chain of command of the normal defense department, although they are a part of it. It's, it's kind of complicated. So anyhow, yeah. Well, we're coming up on time uh, <laughs> for this, for this first one, but uh, I think there might be some value in, in, in continuing on with this. You know, yeah. these are these are these are basic questions, some silly in our opinion, but people have the questions, So we're willing to answer it, uh, especially as we kick this off. So uh, I think we're going to we're going to end it here. We're going to pick this back up. So uh, for like Steve said, whoever you are, wherever you are and you're listening and if you're interested, appreciate you listening. We'll we'll get you some more here. Uh, so take it easy. and We'll catch you in the next one.